Well, good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Nick, one of the pastors here, and I do want to welcome you all to worship, especially if you're just now joining us. We're so glad you're here. Now, this weekend, we are actually taking some time to celebrate the one and only Elizabeth Ellinger. She was in here at the last service, and now she's over in the traditional service. But this is actually uh, Elizabeth's last Sunday here on staff before she uh, really begins to pursue some new God dreams in her life. Now, I've had the honor of getting to serve with her for two years, and I've discovered what many of you already know, that she's an incredible human being. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah? And, um, man, nine years. Nine years here serving at the church in various roles, mainly as the adult discipleship uh, coordinator, and she is going to be in the cafe immediately after worship, uh, an opportunity for you to go over there and give her a hug, tell her how much you love her, um, but I encourage you all to do that. So be sure to stop by after worship over in the cafe. Well, my wife and I, we lived in Ohio before we moved here, and what my wife would do sometimes is she would, she would take the kids and she would come down here to South Carolina. Her parents are from Abbeville. They still live there, and she would, she would spend about a week or so at her parents' house and leave me in Ohio by myself. Now, I'm, I'm going to be straight up with y'all and honest. I love being a parent. Love it. But I would look forward to those weeks like a little kid looks forward to Christmas. You know what I'm saying? Like when you live in the middle of chaos and you've got people all around you, when you get a week to yourself, where y'all at? Come on, make some noise. You know what I'm talking about? Man, you get a week to yourself, it's like, I'm going to do what I want for a whole week. I'm going to stay up as late as I want. I'm going to sleep in. I don't have to put anybody to bed. I don't have to change any diapers. I'm going to eat whatever I want, wherever I want. I'm going to sleep all over the bed, you know? It's mine, right? It's awesome. So, you know, typically this is how I was going into these weeks, and, and the first 48 hours were great. I was loving it. But after a couple of days, how do you think I was? A sappy mess. I mean, seriously, you're sitting around and it's like everything's too quiet. You know, and, and, and the house doesn't really feel like a home anymore. You, you miss the noise. You miss the chaos. You miss the wrestling match that is dinner. Am I right? And then, and then towards the end of the week, I kid you not, this is pathetic. After only a few days of being away from, I'd like at night going to bed, I'd like walk into their bedrooms and stare at their empty beds. It's like, it's pathetic. It's pathetic. Here's what I've learned in the process, though. You know, you know what makes a house a home? It's the people in it. What, what makes a house a home? It's the people in it. I mean, today we're, we're wrapping up this Fixer Upper series. Have y'all enjoyed this series? If you haven't had a chance to hear all the messages, I want to encourage you to go online. You can, you can listen to them on the, on the website. But the whole point of this series was to inspire you and I and, and to empower us to really move towards making some changes in our lives, to pursue a total life renovation. And what I know is what I want to do this morning is take a look at, at, at the role that our shared life plays in that transformation process. Remember, what, what makes a house a home? People in it. If you and I are really going to pursue making some changes in our lives, then we're going to need some help from our friends. Let me show you what I mean. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'll give you a second to turn there. Now, a lot of scholars believe that 1 Thessalonians may have, in fact, been the first book written in the New Testament. Right? It's the first book that's written after Jesus has been resurrected, after this church has been formed. And it's written by a guy named Paul. Y'all probably heard of him. 
and he's writing to what seems to be a pretty new church. So this is a group of people who are really wrestling with, still trying to understand what does it mean to be a part of this Jesus movement, right? And now they're going through some tough times. And here's why. Paul had just been there not too long ago. And while he was there, he had really stirred up some trouble. I love this guy, right? He was going around proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. This is what he was saying. Now you got to understand, this was a direct insult to the Roman Empire. The Roman officials didn't like hearing that very much because so the, the empire's propaganda would go around, and guess what they would say? Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. But here comes Paul in, into the city, and he begins proclaiming and teaching that Jesus is Lord. That was a major offense, and the Roman officials didn't like it. Well, it seems that even after Paul left, how do you like that? I'm going to come in there and stir things up. Right? As soon as he leaves, this trouble didn't go away. In fact, it seemed to get worse. And so there is this new church, these young believers who are still trying to figure out what does it mean to, to sort of live this new way of life, to pursue this Jesus way of life. And they've got the Roman authorities and officials persecuting them, breathing down their necks, hauling people off to prison. And what seems to be happening is that some of the people were allowing some of their internal struggles. Y'all got some of those? Fear, anxiety, doubts, insecurities. They're allowing some of their internal struggles and their external circumstances. You got some of those too, right? Challenges, difficult people, in-laws. Just kidding. My in-laws are great, by the way. Love you. (laughs) But they were allowing some of their external circumstances and challenges and their internal struggles to drown out their convictions and beliefs. And what seems to be happening, some of them were just giving up on the whole thing altogether and going back to their old way of life. And we, we can relate to that, can't we? If anybody in this room has ever set out to bring any sort of serious change in their life, like to really begin to, to, to grow and to become healthy, right? Maybe there's a hang-up or a habit or an addiction that you've been wanting to work on, right? You want to get more healthy. Or maybe there's an area of your life. Maybe it's your marriage, whatever it is. But you want to see things change. And you decide, all right, today's a day. We're going to start working towards change. You ever been there before? Or, or, or maybe for you, you, you want to start heading in a new direction. There's this new endeavor you want to pursue, this new God call you want to begin to, to, to move towards, right? Or maybe it's some sort of change that you want to be a part bringing into community. And you start heading in that direction, and almost immediately, what happens? We realize, whew, we got a lot of work to do. We realize how scary it is to actually step in that direction, We realize how hard it's going to be to bring that sort of change to the community. And what is the temptation, folks, when that happens? Why bother? We throw in the towel, right? We quit. And we go back to the old way of life, even though we know it's not great, but it's not as scary as heading in the opposite direction, right? This is sort of the the atmosphere that Paul is speaking to when he writes this letter, and what he says to them and what he says to us. Let's go back to that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5. Listen to what he says. It says, you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Here's what he's saying. Man, as followers of Jesus, we are called to be daytime people. People who are wide awake, 
wide awake to what God has done and what God is still doing through Jesus Christ, even though it'd be a whole lot easier to go back to sleep. It'd be a whole lot easier to roll over and hit the snooze button. Paul says, no, if you said yes to Jesus, if you centered your life around this resurrected Christ, you are called to live with this awareness, this awakeness, this alertness to what God has done, to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. See, Paul has this conviction. And if you're here today and you've said yes to Jesus, we're called to have the same conviction, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we just celebrated this a couple months ago, Easter, right? The resurrection of Jesus Christ has opened the door for God's new world to come bursting forth right here in the middle of this one. That's what you believe. This is what you signed up for. At the same time, the resurrection declares that God's new day is already beginning to dawn. And then the whole business of being a person of the resurrection, a follower of this Jesus Christ, means that we are committed to living right now in light of this new world, but in the midst of the old one. That we are called to live into this new day when honestly, sometimes we look around, it still looks like night. How many of y'all know a thing or two about that? We are called to be people who, though the rest of the world may be asleep, the rest of the world's walking around saying, it's still nighttime, why bother, go back to sleep. We are called to say, no, 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 no. We look, look at the, the sliver of light that's just beyond the horizon. We fix our eyes on that. And we say, you know what? It's only a matter of time before God's new day has fully dawned. That's what it means to be people of the resurrected Jesus. Here's, here's what he's saying to us. Let me make this as simple as I possibly can. As followers of Jesus, we are not called to take our cues from our internal struggles or from our external challenges. They don't call the shots. We don't ignore them, trivialize them, explain them away. They're, they're real and they're there, but they do not determine what you and I do or what we believe is possible. You and I are called to take our cue from the hope that we have in Jesus. Somebody better say amen to that. That in Jesus Christ, God has defeated everything that holds us back, everything that trips us up. It's been taken care of. And not only that, here's what we can be sure of. One day, Jesus Christ is going to return. And despite how things look and despite how we may feel about it, one day Jesus is going to return to finish what was started, to set things right. This is the hope that we have in Jesus. It means that there's nothing in our lives that God cannot bring back to life, that God cannot redeem. We are called to be people of the day. Are you with me? Y'all don't seem too excited about that. Man, that's a big word. That's a powerful word. That's an important word. It's something I could spend weeks chewing on, but we're not going to do that. Instead, what I want to do, though, is I want to zero in on how Paul finishes his passage. Because up to this point, if we're honest, everything so far, as, as important as it is, as, as, as powerful as it is, as big as it is, is kind of squishy. Right? It's conceptual. They're big ideas, but it doesn't feel very concrete doesn't feel very practical, but Paul finishes his passage with something very practical. Verse 11, here's what he says. Therefore, encourage one another. Word literally means come alongside of each other. Stand shoulder to shoulder. And the image I have here is of somebody leaning over into somebody's ear, saying, I know it looks dark, but look, just ahead. 
The sun's rising. A new day is dawning. Encourage one another and build each other up. You see that there? And that word there for build each other up, it's literally, it's the verb form of the noun for the word house. And so it literally means build a house, fix one another up, develop each other, push each other forward to do and to be more than you want to do and be on your own. That's something to think about, isn't it? And in the light of the hope that we have and in the face of the challenges that come our way, here's what Paul says to us. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Here's what this means. When it comes to to a total life renovation, guess what? That's not a solo project. It's not something you could do on your own. If we really get serious about bringing change into our life and we set out to do that by ourselves, here's what I know. We're not going to get very far. Any change we do experience, it's not going to go very deep. At the same time, it probably won't stick around very long. But if we're going to get serious about seeing transformation happen in our lives, then we're going to need to open ourselves up. We're going to need to commit ourselves to a group of people. So I want to ask you this morning, who have you let in? Man, if, 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 if what makes a house a home is the people that we've let in, who have you allowed to have a seat at your dining room table? Who have you let in? What I want to explore is, is the role that our shared life plays in that transformation process and how our life with one another intersects our life with God. And the first thing I'll say is this, is that our shared life, our connection with one another is one of the primary places where you and I encounter God. We encounter God there. I just wonder how many of us, if we were to be really honest this morning, and you know, we're here, we believe all this stuff, you know, we, we like coming to church, we, we like being in worship, but if we're honest, God just feels distant. God feels far away. It doesn't feel very real. I want you to hold on to that thought. Be honest with that, because I believe that our shared life, our collective experience together is one of the primary places where God meets us in a unique way. I mean, think about it like this. You and I have been made in the image of a God who's best understood as Trinity. Do you remember hearing about this, learning about this in Sunday school class when you were a kid? That God is Trinity, right? That God is what? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And God is somehow three, and yet God is somehow one. Both of these things are true, right? I have never heard anybody explain this to me in a way that makes sense. I have one class left before I finish seminary. Y'all should apply for that too, right? But you know know what that means? It means I'm an educated man. That's what it means. And this still doesn't make sense. How is it that God can be three and yet be one, right? Right? It doesn't make any sense. The best explanation I've ever heard is that God is kind of like an egg. You ever hear that? You got the shell and the egg white and the yolk, whatever. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? God's like an egg? What? That's the best we can do? We're never going to understand how the Trinity works. We're never going to get that. But here's what we can be sure of. We know what it means. God isn't just in a relationship. God is relationship. God is communal. And you and I, We have been made in the image of this relational, of this communal God, which means that our connections with one another, our relationships, our community, it's not just another thing we do, folks. It's a vital part of who we are. 
It goes to the core of our identity. This is why you can be with your people, right? You can be in that place, that, that time where you're, you're connecting with your people. You know what I'm talking about. You've had those moments. And everything feels right. Everything feels good. Everything feels the way that it should. There's this life, isn't there? There's this energy we get. When we come together, when we connect that way, it's like this past uh, past weekend, my wife and I, we went camping with some new friends of ours, Natalie and Jay, and they're two boys. They have a son named Rowan as well. My son's Rowan. It's kind of interesting. Two Rowans in the same church. It's cool, right? And their youngest, Haynes. We decided to go camping. My in-laws have like 60 acres up in Abbeville, beautiful lands, beautiful and they have an old camper that they've, they've kept up. It's really nice. And so often they'll drop the camper off and we go spend a couple days out on the land. So it's really more like glamping. Right? Is that what you call it? It's not like legit. We're in, a, we're in a camper. We're in a trailer. And so we all decided we all went out there together. And I had in my mind, really, I thought, here's what I thought. This is going to be a nice, relaxing weekend. Which I've discovered that may be this dumbest thing I've ever thought in my life. And, and I mean, Natalie even said... You know, it's not vacation with kids unless you come back more tired than you were before you left. Here's what I'm talking about. Oh, man, it's crazy. It's nuts. That first night, we all piled into the camper, and we all thought we we're going to sleep in the camper. The two youngest kids just took turns waking each other up. It's like they had a conversation beforehand. You know? Tell you what, I'll cry first, and then you cry second. And then I'll take third shift. You take fourth. It was just back and forth all night long. So the second night, we decided, you know what? We're going to go about this differently. And Natalie and Jay had brought a tent, so they decided to go sleep out in the tent with their youngest, and the rest of us would stay in the camper. And things started off great. It was wonderful. We were all sleeping. It was, it was perfect. About 2.30 in the morning, this huge thunderstorm comes up out of nowhere, and Natalie and Jay come tumbling in, and once again, we're all in the camper together, and nobody slept. It was great. Fantastic. Some of you are like, this sounds like the most awful Memorial Day weekend ever. But you know, it's far from it. It's actually a really great time with some wonderful people. And it was just great, like, looking around, watching these kids play together, run around on the land, chase bugs, do adventurous things. It was, it was so much fun to watch. I got some pictures, actually, from the weekend I want, I want to show you. It was, it was great. They're the kids. My daughter picked almost every single wildflower she could find. That's GG. And then we had a four-wheeler. It's hard to beat a four-wheeler. I mean, come on. And then my daughter, Selma, she found a butterfly net. Didn't really know how to use it, but she still had a good time, right? But then, then the, the last night, though, our second night together, we were able somehow to get the kids in bed and to be quiet, and we all snuck out together to sit around the fire. And look at that. Isn't that beautiful? And this is one of those moments I was talking about. It was brief, but it was great. We were telling stories, and we were talking, and we were laughing. And it's one of those moments you just want to hold on to. Who knows what I'm talking about? And you're surrounded by these people, and you're connecting in this beautiful way, and it just feels right. See, in those moments, I'm convinced. Not only are we enjoying each other, but I believe in those moments, we're actually encountering God in a really unique way. First John chapter 4, 12 says this, no one has ever seen God, but when we love one another, God lives in us. You can't see God. You can't touch God. But when we connect with one another, I believe the presence of God meets us in a unique way. And so the trick, what I've discovered, the trick to getting the most out of these moments is to not only celebrate them for what they seem to be, but recognize them for what they are. 
So, so like the next time you're having that great conversation with a good friend over a cup of coffee, right? And it just feels good. Do me a favor. Take a moment. Consecrate it. Recognize the fact that God is there in your midst. Or the next time you're, you're with some friends and, you, and you're gathered around a kitchen table late at night and you're laughing and telling stories from a long time ago, take a moment, pause, stop, recognize that God is in this place. God is here. God is with us. I mean, I have to wonder, though, how much time are you and I carving out, setting aside for that type of connection? I, I know we can't live there. Right? We got responsibilities, we got jobs, we got places we got to be, right? I get that. But if I look at my life and I'm really honest with you, those moments are few and far between. Anybody else feel that way? I mean, even my wife and I, we have like this family goal. We want to get our own camper one day. My wife grew up in a camper. They went all over the place. They had a great time as a family. We want to do the same thing with, with our kids. And we also want to be able to, to go and do that with other families and, and just really have a great time. Can I tell you what I'm afraid of, though? I'm afraid that we're going to work really hard to get that camper, and then it's going to sit in our driveway, and we're never going to use it because we're too busy. But man, if connecting with people is that good for our soul, if it's that essential, you know what we got to do? We got to put down the cell phones, and we got to clear off our calendars. We got to create some margin for what matters most. I believe that our shared life is one of the primary places where you and I, where we encounter the living God. But I also believe this. It's one of the places where you and I experience growth. It's where we experience change. I mean, last week, Pastor Drew shared with us a great word out of Matthew chapter 7. This is that famous teaching by Jesus about the danger of judging other people, right? And he gives us that great imagery of, a, of somebody walking around with this, like huge plank sticking out of their eye, pointing out everybody's specs. You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful teaching, great teaching, but it hit me how this teaching ends. Jesus wraps it up in this super profound way. Verse 5, Jesus says this, You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He just caught me off guard a little while back. At the whole point of this teaching isn't for you and I to just not judge each other, the whole point of this teaching is that Jesus believes that somehow by the grace of God, you and I can become the kind of people and we can have the type of relationships where we can actually help each other out with our specs. How about that? Y'all got any specs? I got them. You got some rough edges? You got some hangups, some habits, some things that you want to see different? You got some blind spots in your life? I know I do. But I also know I can't take care of them by myself because I, I do one of two things. Either I act like they're not there. So you're talking to me, my eyes are like, like blinking. What's wrong with your eye? Nothing. I'm fine. I'm good. I got this under control, right? Or if I go to get the speck, I'm going to gouge my whole eye out. And what I need are other people who I've opened myself up to, who I can trust. And people who I know want more from me than I sometimes want from myself. I need that. You need that. A friend of mine used to say that his mind was like a bad neighborhood. You didn't want to go in there alone, right? G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, from a long time ago, he said, thinking in isolation and with pride results in being an idiot. Boy, isn't that true? I need other people helping me with my specs. 
and so do you. God does his best work through other people. And this is why when people come and talk to me, and, and they say things to me like, man, I just don't know where God is. I want these things to change. I want these things to be different. I don't know where God is. My first question has become this. Where are you? Particularly when it relates to other followers of Jesus, to community. Because when you cut yourself off from that, you simultaneously cut yourself off from the primary way in which God wants to work in your life. It's through other people. It's God's preferred way of working. And the reason I'm passionate about this because I know it firsthand. I stand before you today, and I'm telling you, there was a season in my life that I wouldn't have made it through. I certainly wouldn't be standing up in front of you right now if it weren't for a group of men who pushed me through it. Because my wife and I, we were, we were in Ohio. It's where, where we were at before we moved here, and, and we were serving at this church. It's a wonderful church, church that we love. It's one of the, the largest, most influential Methodist churches in the denomination. And it was actually a church that I had known about for a while. So the opportunity to be a part of it, man, that was incredible. It's incredible. And I started off there as, as what they called the high school pastor. But in less than two years, they approached me about being what was called the teaching pastor, which meant that I would be preaching on a regular basis in worship on Sunday mornings. Now, this was the goal for me. This is what I wanted to do my whole life. Like, my dream role will be teaching pastors. I like to talk a lot, obviously. At the same time, here I was doing that at a church that I loved, that I admired. It was so exciting, but at the same time, it was terrifying. At that point, I hadn't been to seminary yet. I ain't started. I'd maybe preached to adults five times in my life. And here they were asking me to preach to thousands of people on a regular basis. Parents, do you remember when you left the hospital with your first kid? And you're walking out the door and you're thinking, they're going to let me go home with this human being, right? That's about how I felt. I was like, y'all know what you're doing here, right? I have no idea what I'm, I'm going to screw this up, right? You sure you want to go through with this? And I'll be honest, it started off great. Be, first couple weekends, I knocked it out of the park. It's great messages. People telling me, man, so good. Such a good message. Lots of positive feedback. And it felt good to hear that. That's when the pressure started, though. Like you hear that kind of stuff, you're like, man, we can, this weekend was good. Next weekend's got to be even better. Because if it's not any better, then people aren't going to say nice things to me anymore. Then it's not going to feel good. And so the pressure came in. And I would work so hard to make sure that this upcoming message was even better than, than the last one. And that pressure, it, built, it was building and building and building until finally there was this one message that was just a bear, like wrestling with it all week, and there was nothing. I'm, I'm speaking for every preacher Every pastor, some of you may be watching online, this is hard. This is difficult. Sometimes there's nothing scarier than sitting down in front of a blank piece of paper and thinking, I got to come up with something profound to say. And, and here's the thing. You can't make it happen. Either it's there or it's not. It's like being a farmer. You got to work around the weather. Man, when the creative stuff's there, it's coming. But when it's not coming, you can't force it. It's terrifying. And so there was this message, and I was working on it and working on it and working on it, and I had nothing. And, I, and in, at that church, we had to actually give our sermons on Friday mornings in front of this team of people. And they would sort of make some suggestions, make sure that you're saying what you want to say. And, and honestly, sometimes that meeting was scarier than the weekend, but it was such a good thing. 
But I'll never forget that week. I sat down to do what I always had done. Is I, like I would get down on a Thursday night with all my notes, and I would sit down to finally put that version together. I sat down that Thursday, maybe around 7 o'clock at night, with a blank piece of paper. Friday at 6 a.m., I was still sitting in the same place, and that paper was still blank. There was nothing. It wasn't coming. And it was one of the most terrifying things I ever felt in my life. It was like going to sit in a chair. It's always been there, and it wasn't there anymore. There's nothing I could do about it. And I went into that meeting with like a dog with his tail between his legs. And the team was amazing. I mean, they really helped me put something together. And I went up there and, and I felt like it was awful. Probably wasn't as bad as I thought it was. But see, that experience, you know what it did? It sent me into a tailspin. Every single weekend I had to come up with a message, it was the same thing. And the anxiety began to set in. Y'all know anxiety? Couldn't sleep. Couldn't eat. I'd walk around with this pain in my jaw all the time. It's freaking out. What if it happens again? What if it happens again? And it was so frustrating because everything on the surface looked great. And here I was in my dream role at a church I loved. People telling me all these wonderful things, saying all these great things. My wife and I had just given birth to our first kid. Everything looked great on the surface. I was freaking out on the inside. And there was something else going on at the same time that I think really fueled all of this. So I had some unresolved issues in my relationship with my father that had really begun to come to the surface. It's funny, for 19, 20, whatever plus years, I had acted like I didn't have any of those. Like there wasn't any wounds, like I was fine. But it's funny how when you have a kid and you look at your child, you can't do that anymore. As hard as you try, you can't do it anymore. Because there are all these weird insecurities, all these fears that I had where I would look at my son. I was so excited to be a dad. But at the same time, I was absolutely terrified. And here's what I was afraid of. I was afraid of no matter what I did, I was going to make the same mistakes. That no matter what I did, it was only a matter of time before he and I had the same relationship. And it was terrifying. And I'm going to say this. In my experience, fellas, we struggle with this. I counsel with a lot of guys. I sit down with a lot of couples. And it gets, it's really quick sometimes how painfully obvious for the guy, a lot of his dysfunction traces itself back to a wound from his father. Or maybe there's some sort of deficiency. There's something he didn't get from his dad. And we work so hard to try to act like that's not the case. That wound's not there. And we certainly don't want to talk about it. But something else I've discovered is whatever we don't confront Whatever we don't deal with, you know what? We just hand it off. We pass it down. We think it's only about us and our stuff. That's not true. It impacts the people around us. Whatever we don't deal with, we hand it off. And so here I was. I had two options in my mind. One, fake it. Fake it. Just put a lot of effort into the curb appeal. Talked about that a couple weeks ago, right? Or two, run away. Quit which is what I really wanted to do because the curb appeal thing only lasts for a while and it's exhausting. I wanted to get out of all of it. I wanted to be done with everything. And I'm so glad I'm standing here today. I didn't do either of those things. And the only reason I didn't because there was a group of men who wouldn't let me. Every Friday morning, we met at this little diner at 6 a.m. called Sam and Ethel's. Best omelets you ever had in your life. But every single Friday, I had to drag myself there because I'll be honest, I didn't want to go. 
But they would call out all the lies that I believed, that I was buying into, lies that I was just destined to repeat the same stuff. No matter how hard I tried, they called those lies out. And they reminded me of what was true. At the same time, they helped me realize that I was, my foundation wasn't on the right thing. We talked about that the first week of the series, that every life needs a foundation. At that point in time, my foundation wasn't on the gospel, wasn't on Jesus Christ. It was on my performance. It was on what other people thought about me. And something I've come to learn, whew, much as I love y'all, if my worth and value comes what you think about me, I'm going to be in basket case because I'm probably going to say things you don't like. In fact, if I'm doing my job, I'm probably going to say things you don't like. My identity's got to come from some other place. My foundation's got to be somewhere else. Thankfully, I came out of it. Can't tell you how. I mean, there was no magical formula that made it all go away. I just kept showing up every Friday morning. I kept showing up. I kept leaning in. And eventually, I got to a place where I could handle it with some help. I could handle it. Here's my question for you. Do you have that? See, I don't share all this with you so you feel some weird need to counsel me. I don't need that. I'm working through my stuff. I share all this to hopefully inspire you to deal with your stuff. And so maybe you're somebody in here and you've been pretending your whole life like you don't have it, like you don't got anything wrong, but the whole time you've been running away from it. Maybe you've been working on it by yourself. You're not going to get very far. In fact, Jesus offers you a better way anyway. Do you have that? Do you have that group of people? Because honestly, it is my dream. It is my goal, my ambition for every single person who calls Mount Horeb home to have that, to have a community of people who are in their corner, to have people who are going to fight for their marriage, people who are going to help them raise their kids, people who are going to want more for you than you sometimes want for yourself. Do you have that? Because if you don't, I'd love to help you find it. It's what we call small groups around here. And I'll say this. I'm looking. I can see some of y'all in the room. I know y'all in some great groups. You better say amen when I say this. It's as important as it is. It's not easy, is it? It's not easy. And here's why. Because we're flaky. We don't commit to things. We show up for a little while, and then we bail. Am I right? If you want to get in a good group, it's hard. It is difficult. It's going to take you showing up every week for a while before it ever feels natural, before it ever feels comfortable. It takes a while. And it's hard, but I can help you. I can't do it for you, but I can put you in a position and I can help you move in that direction. We typically start groups through something called One Life. It's a six-week class. But over the summer, we don't do that because everybody's traveling and it's hard for people to get together six weeks in a row. But there's other ways to get in a group. And and here's one of the ways I want you all to think about this because often, you know, people will come to us and they want us to put them in a group. We can do that. That's fine. But I like thinking about it this way. Like, if you're anything like me, I don't need another thing in my life. Does that make sense? I got plenty of things. My question is, how do you make what you have more intentional? And so here's the deal. There's probably some people you hang out with already on a somewhat regular basis. It could be a neighbor. It could be a coworker, Somebody you interact with a couple times a month. They don't even have to go to this church. I don't care. What if you were to approach them and say, hey, what if we just carved out some time to talk about the stuff that matters? to bring some intentionality into our friendships. If you can gather me up some people like that, I can help you. We, we put together a resource. It's a book, actually, that I wrote. It's called One, and it's a six-week read that will help you get that group started off on the right foot. 
I believe in it. I've seen what it can do for, for people who are, really want to get serious about intentional community. We have some copies of that out at the, the guest services area if you're interested in it. But if this is something you want to do, then please do me a favor. Let me know. I want to come alongside of you. I want to help you get to that place because I know one thing's for sure. We can't do this by ourselves. And if we want to experience real growth, real change, we're going to have to let some people in. Let them have a seat at our table. One final thought, I promise. I'm going to wrap it up. That our, our shared life together is not only a place where we encounter God and it's where we experience growth, but it's ultimately also one of the places where you and I, where we exemplify the gospel, where we prove to people that this Jesus thing is for real. According to the church calendar, today is Pentecost Sunday. It's a Sunday where Christians have been celebrating the gift of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. You can read about this in Acts chapter 2. But essentially what we're told is that when the Holy Spirit is unleashed on this day of Pentecost, right? And when, when God's worldwide renovation project takes a big step forward, one of the first things that happens is that this group of people who are from all over the world had come into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate, a Passover, to celebrate Pentecost, from different backgrounds, different uh, ideologies, they're all in the same place, and they connect in this beautiful way, all centered around their own experience with Jesus. See, sin divides. Sin separates. We see that in our world today, don't we? It tears people apart. It pushes things apart. The gospel unites in fact, Paul says several times throughout his letters that what God is up to in Jesus is this sort of cosmic reconciliation, that God is bringing all things back together. And the church is meant to be a picture, but meant to be living proof that the gospel is true. How do you think we're doing with that, church? See, our shared life with one another is not optional. It's one of the primary ways in which we prove to the world that the gospel's true. And here in a moment, we're going to receive communion. This is about as good as it gets right here. I love communion. One of my favorite things about communion is the fact that I know we all come into this room from so many different backgrounds, different, different experiences, different ideologies, different ways of thinking. We come in here as Carolina fans and as Clemson fans. We come into this room as Republicans and as Democrats. We come into this room as conservatives, as liberals, and everything in between. But you know what? We all come to the same table, and we all receive the same grace. It's a beautiful picture that right here around this table, though we are many right here, we're one. So as we come to receive communion, we believe that in this place right here, we receive real grace from Jesus Christ. And so my question for you before you come forward to receive this grace is what grace do you need today? In light of this entire series, in light of the transformation and change that you want to see happen in your life, what sort of grace do you need to receive from Jesus today? Maybe it's the grace to look inward, to get honest about something you haven't been honest about. Maybe it's the grace to turn towards other people, to ask for help. Let's spend a few moments right now inviting the Holy Spirit to speak to us. We pray?